Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning, everybody. Um, I have a friend who works on Capitol Hill, and uh, he goes to a church that every now and then some really famous politicians, high-ranking public servants go to, and he tells me that you can always tell when a politician is about to come to church because before the politician comes through the door, you see all the Secret Service guys in black suits with the little squiggly earpieces talking to each other. They always come first. So the politician, and not just in church, but really anywhere, is preceded by the Secret Service. Um, And obviously that's for a number of reasons. It's probably good to let the congregation know, you know, somebody super famous is about to step into the room. But also, they're making sure that it's safe and prepared for this person to come into the room. So this is the Christian season of Advent, hence all the purple. Even my purple mask. Have you guys appreciated my purple mask? Uh, Jen Olson made that for me. I love it. Uh, And as Father Kent taught us last week, Advent is all about anticipating the comings of Jesus. We remember his first coming at Christmas and his incarnation, in order to anticipate his second coming. And wouldn't you know, just like politicians in the Secret Service, there's always something that precedes the coming of God. And that is his word. To put it another way, the word of God always comes before the word of God. And by that I mean the little w word of God always precedes the capital W incarnate word of God. Uh, In John's gospel, Jesus, the full manifestation of God, is referred to as the logos, the word of God, which is where we get that title for Jesus. So the spoken word always precedes the incarnate word. That's the big idea for this morning. The word comes before the word. Let me show you what I'm talking about in Luke 3. So if you have a Bible, Flip with me to Luke 3, what Caitlin just read. Um, If you don't, it's in your bulletin. If you're watching on the live stream, please grab a Bible, open up with me to Luke 3. When most of us um, think about Christmas and Advent, we don't immediately think nostalgically of John the Baptist preaching repentance to a bunch of people. Uh, He's not normal in our holiday season. We don't get out our Christmas decorations and like, here's the nutcracker, here's Santa, here's John. Um, that's not that normal, but we should think of John the Baptist when we think about the holiday season, because John is the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, and that's why John always shows up in our church lectionary, our list of Bible readings, in the second and third Sundays of Advent. Half of Advent is John the Baptist preaching repentance. So even though John isn't a part of our culture's holiday season, I want to put to you that John the Baptist is absolutely a part of our holiday season, okay? And here's my really bad idea of how to incorporate John into Christmas. What if we switch the elf on the shelf with John the Baptist on the shelf? How great would that be? You'd have to find John preaching repentance in some random part of your house every day, right? That's genius. What a way to plunder the Egyptians. Um, somebody work that out, do a mock-up, and we can start selling that with Christchurch's brand. 
But to bring it back to the big idea, nowhere do we have a better picture of the word coming before the word than in the story of John the Baptist. So go to Luke 3, and let's read the first two um, verses of this chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. At first glance, it seems like a bunch of random historical facts all jumbled together in places, right? But this is actually a very significant prophetic formula that Luke is using to introduce the ministry of John. Because this is the way that all the great prophets in history were introduced. Exactly like this. So let me just read a couple. Here's from Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judea, in the 13th year of his reign. Here's Ezekiel. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. Does anybody have a dad named Buzi? In the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. I could go on. At first, I had like five of these examples, but you get the point. This is the formula used to introduce the great prophetic moments of history, and it's historicizing it. It's putting it in a time and place. And so John is intentionally being introduced here as the last in the line of great prophets, you could put it this way. He's the last person that the little W word rushed upon before the W, capital W word came, proclaiming the day of the Lord. And did you notice that in each introduction, the ones I just read, the word of the Lord came to them. You get that same vocabulary. Ezekiel is sitting by the Chabar Canal and all of a sudden, the word of God rushes upon him. John the Baptist is in the wilderness, and all of a sudden, the word comes to him. And this was not like a Wycliffe Bible translator showing up and being like, hey, here's the Torah, right? They already had the word of God. It was not an aha moment. Sometimes we say, an idea came to me while I was brushing my teeth. It's not like that. This is by divine action, the word of God rushing, consuming, controlling the person who's being overwhelmed by the word of God. So that, as Jeremiah puts it, a fire was lit up in his bones so that he had to speak. And that they did, all the prophets. But to come back to our big idea, notice that the word comes to John in this way before the incarnate word, Jesus, comes to John. Jesus was right around the corner. But first, God's word came to John. If you're looking at Luke 3 in your Bible, 
and I'll just show you this. By the way, I really would love for everybody to bring their Bible. One day we're going to buy pew Bibles, but this would be so nice. So bring your Bible. If you don't have one, I'll buy you one. Here's Luke 3. This is what we just read. Jesus comes on the scene right here. He's right around the corner. He's alive at the same time of John. He's geographically close to John. And yet before he comes to John, the word comes to John. You could also say the thing about all the people. Jesus is, about to, Jesus is about to come and preach and heal all the people, but before Jesus shows up on the scene, the word of God comes to all the people through John. Why is that? That was my main question this week. Why does the word come first? Put simply, the word of God came first to John and then through John to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus just like the Secret Service agents. Luke makes this clear, clear by quoting Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. And how does the word prepare the way for the word? Like in all prophetic ministries, we see the word of God in Luke 3, prepare the people for the coming of the Lord in three main ways. So if you are an outliner, Three main points here that we're going to work with. How does the word of God prepare the way? Here's the first one. First, where things had become enmeshed, the word forced distinction. Let me say that again. Where things had become enmeshed, the word forced distinction. What do I mean by that? To so go back to those first two verses with all the people and all the places, it's basically all the movers and shakers in that day. The cast to the drama of the gospel, essentially. You get all the main Roman political rulers, Pilate, Herod, Philip the Tetrarch, and they're all in this weird relationship with one another politically. You get all the main Jewish leaders of the day, Annas and Caiaphas. But sadly, in their day, as in ours, culture, and religion, and politics, and worship were all tangled up and enmeshed together in a big knot. The kingdom of heaven had become mixed up with the kingdom of the world. True religion had become in some ways imperceptible from false religion. And all of us know when that happens, it gets really hard to tell which is what and what is which, right? It has a way of disguising and diluting and distorting truth and justice, and it has an extremely negative effect on the people of God and on the world in general. And to give you a really bad example of how bad the entanglement had got, at the end of the gospel, Pilate asked the crowd, do you really want me to crucify for you your king? And what did the people respond back with? We have no king but Caesar. That's messed up. I don't have time to go into that right now, but that, my friends, is enmeshment. So now don't miss this. The word of God comes to John, not in Jerusalem, not in the barracks, not even in the temple, guys. It comes to John where? In the wilderness, which is another way of saying no man's land. And immediately, immediately it forced a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. 
it immediately drew a holy line in the sand. The prophet Malachi that Leah read this morning talks tons about purifying. That's what purifying fire does. It separates things that had previously been entangled. One of the commentators I was reading this week pointed out that to even hear John, you had to physically depart from the prevailing social order and spheres of influences, and you had to head out into the desert. It required separation. And when you got there, you would have heard John, crazy John, start challenging and rebuking the status quo of both the political and the religious order. Even in Luke 3, he starts going after both. And then you would have experienced him calling you to repent, to turn from that status quo, and to embrace what I've heard called a conversion of loyalties. Isn't that a great phrase? A conversion of loyalties. He's going to ask you, he draws the line in the sand when the word of God comes, and then he's going to ask you, now step over it. When things get enmeshed, the word of God forces a distinction. That's the first way that it prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. Second, where sin had become domesticated, the word brought revival. Say that again. Where sin had become domesticated, the word brought revival. To go back to D.C. and the politicians in the Secret Service, imagine that this church... Uh, was, had grown really sloppy in their welcome ministry and just trying it all. They hadn't had visitors in ages. They weren't expecting visitors. They didn't care about visitors. So nobody was at the door. The greeter was asleep. Uh, the coffee was like a month old. Everybody was just joking around. Nobody was ready for anybody to come. Now, first of all, that would never be Christchurch Madison, right? We have the greatest welcome ministry in the history of the world, I think, it's fair to say. It's arguable, but, you know. But let's say it did happen, and then all of a sudden, the Secret Service people show up and say, hey, so-and-so is about to come to church. You would snap quick into gear and right, like figure out, oh my gosh, we gotta be prepared for the coming of these people. We have to change what has now become the norm in our church for our greeting team. In a similar way, it's a ridiculous analogy, a result of prophetic ministry always is social renewal and spiritual revival. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're actually going to read the rest of this chapter and, and John's preaching about this next week. So I want to save some of that for then. But after all these people are drawn out from the world and they, they enter into this distinction of God's kingdom, John is going to start rebuking a lot of the things that had become domesticated in their life, things that had become normal. And they say, what shall we do? And he tells them to change. And they change. Jews, Romans, religious people, soldiers, tax collectors, all types of different people. This is what it means for valleys to be filled, mountains to be made low, crooked things to be straightened out, and the rough places to be smooth and level, as Isaiah says. So that's the second way it does it. Where sin had become normalized or domesticated, the word of God roots it out, it brings this revival and I would, again, we're going to study this next week, but it's both individual and it's social. It's both in people's lives and it's in the systems in the world that they were all participating in. Finally, where hope had grown cold, 
The word fostered expectation. Where hope had grown cold, the word fostered expectation. A central theme of the word that came to John, and we know this from how people reacted to his ministry, was the proclamation that the Messiah was just around the corner. Isaiah says in verse six that a part of his message was that all flesh would see the salvation of God. And this created suspense in the people when that suspense had been lost, when the expectation had been lost. So let me give you an analogy of this. Any hunters and fishermen in the room? A little bit. Okay, not that many actually, interesting. Okay, well I, I love to fish and a huge part of fishing is right? Being out there for a long time and throwing your line in the water. And I love fishing more than I'm good at fishing. I'm actually a pretty bad fisherman. And so often you go out for a morning, you're there, you're fishing. And after like three hours, you've not caught anything. And again, I love being in the middle of a river. I love being by the side of a lake, but you stop believing when you throw the line in the water that a fish is actually going to bite it because you've been there for so long. And so I just space out and I love it. It's fun, but I just profoundly believe I'm not going to catch anything today. I'm a bad fisherman. It's a bummer that there's no fish in this body of water. But if you've ever hunted, it'd be the same thing for sitting in a deer, a deer stand or a duck blind for a long time, and there's nothing, your heartbeat just settles. But if you've ever fished before, after a while, it could be after four hours of nothing, if you get a tug on your line or you get a hit, all of a sudden, almost immediately, your heart quickens. For me, my, my senses sharpen. All of a sudden, it's real. It's live again, right? And you know what that's like if you're a sportsman, all right? The people in John's day had grown dull in hope. Centuries, years had passed. No Messiah. I imagine many had grown weary of even believing that the Messiah would come at all right? Some had abandoned it. Their liturgies of hope, which were profoundly put into the Jewish way of life, probably in many ways had become dead ritual. We just do this, but I don't know if I actually expect this to be true anymore. But the word of God, which came to John, was like a tug on the line. <sighs> After John's preaching in verse 15, if you have your Bible open, it's not in our bulletin, it says that all the people after John's ministry happened, they were in expectation. That's how it described them. All of a sudden, it was real. They actually believed he was about to come. It was really happening. This is why the word came before the word. It forced a distinction. It brought revival. It fostered expectant hope. It prepared the way. Okay, now, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We must make the connection, as Father Kent pointed out last week, that the season of Advent asks us to make. And that is that just as John and the people in John's day were waiting for God to come, so are we. Amen? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, 
But before he comes, his word comes first. The exact same thing is happening now in this room, in this age of the earth, in 2021, that happened in John's day before Jesus came around the corner. Jesus was right around the corner from John, but God's word came first, and that is true for us. Soon and very soon, Jesus is coming, but before he does, we are experiencing the coming of God's word. And his word rushes upon us to prepare us in the same ways that it prepared John and the people who heard John. To just go back through it really quick, first it forces a distinction. And my brothers and sisters, how we need it. Amen? If John's world was an enmeshed, tangled mess of culture and politics and worship and just everything's all mixed up in this knot, how much more is ours? Who can navigate our crazy 24-hour news cycle and the vitriol and just muck of social media discourse. It's so hard. And in this world, our alliances and our loyalties get equally enmeshed. And as long as we are tangled up in that mess, we're not ready for the word of God to come, capital W. We need to hear God's word calling to us, and now we have the opportunity to head out into no man's land into the wilderness to hear God speak. That's what Jesus did. Do you notice how Jesus does that in his life? Have you ever read about Jesus' life? He's always leaving. This is what John did, this is what the people did in Luke three, and God's word does that to us. When it comes, it draws this line in the sand and it makes a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. It's also, even today, bringing revival where sin has become domesticated. And my, how we need it. Again, we're gonna talk about this next week, but where we've grown slothful, where we've normalized sin and explained, away, explained it away in our lives, we need that rekindling fire to be set alight once more. And even today, the word of God is fostering expectation. And my, how we need it. Amen? Where our liturgies of hope have become purely routine. Where our prayers have become ritual, dead ritual, disconnected from our hearts. The word of God comes and it tugs our line to make our heart beat faster, to make us remember, to put suspense back in the Christian faith because it is suspenseful. Every week I say, therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith, and you say what? Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We say that every week on purpose so that we remember it. Every week when I say, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us over communion, what do you all say? Meaning we are gonna keep this feast. We are not gonna abandon this feast until we all partake of the new feast in the new heavens and new earth. <gasps> Hallelujah. We intentionally do that every week because it is meant to kindle hope in us. But sometimes, all of us, we get disconnected from it. And how many times have you said that and not actually thought, yeah, Christ is coming again? We're just thinking about lunch or something else. And I don't say that to beat, that, beat down us on, I mean, I do the same thing. But what if, 
the word of God ministered to you so much, the Holy Spirit rushed into you so much when you actually thought when you said that, I think he's about to come. I'm actually in expectation that Christ will come again. That's what the word of God does to us. That's why we gather on Sundays like this to do this every single week. But now here's the thing. Here's the prophetic edge to all of this that has captured me this week as well. There's a relationship between the word of God that comes now and the word of God, Jesus, who is coming soon. And it's this. How we respond to the word now corresponds to how we will respond to the coming of the word in glory. Let me say that again. How we respond to the word now corresponds to how we will respond to the capital W word of God when he comes. In other words, if you choose to reject God's word as it comes to you now, then you are choosing rejection at the coming of the Lord. You will not be ready when Christ appears. I'm on an email list that sends patristic readings every week before Sunday, and as I was finishing my sermon last night, I got one in my inbox, and the title was from Jerome, the fourth century theologian, on a little thing that he has where he says, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. But if you receive the word of God as it comes to us now, if you make room for it in your heart, as Jesus says, you will be ready to receive the king when he comes, and you will be received by the king when he comes. There is a direct relationship between the word and the word, and the wise take it to heart. How you respond to one is how you respond to the other. They are linked. Let me give you my favorite Bible example of this. The prophets of the Old Testament, uh, and we read a lot of prophets in Advent because the prophets prophesied and foretold the coming of the Messiah for centuries. It's chock full of proclamations of the day he would come. And this is why in all the birth narratives, Luke and Matthew make such great effort to quote so much prophetic scripture because they're trying to point out to you, look, they said all this was gonna happen and look, it's happening just like this. For example, the prophecies were such common knowledge amongst the Jews that when the wise men, the Magi, go to the scribes, right, and ask where the coming Messiah would be born, they quickly know the answer. Duh, in Bethlehem of Judea, because that's what the prophet says. So this was common knowledge. And yet, despite their Bible knowledge, despite their degrees in Bible, we see so many Jewish leaders not see or receive the word when it comes. Jesus, because they had not made room for God in their heart. And Jesus rebukes them for this. They had become enmeshed in the world. They had fallen in love with the glory of the world and not the glory of God. But the opposite example are the heroes of the faith, Simeon and Anna. We have a Sunday where we're gonna read scripture about them, so I don't wanna steal too much thunder from Simeon and Anna. But in Luke 2, Simeon is presented to us as just this other guy in Israel, this older guy in Israel. But Luke 2.25 says he was, quote, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Likewise, we're introduced to the prophetess, a widow who had been in the temple for like 70 years, and her name was Anna. Anna was just an old woman in Israel, and yet Luke tells us she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This was her wheelhouse. So the picture we get is of these two old people in the temple who had repeatedly and constantly opened themselves up to God's word and expecting his coming, waiting for it. They had kept their candles burning. And guess what happens immediately when the infant Christ just enters into the temple where they're at? They immediately rejoice. They immediately recognize the Christ, the word of God who had become flesh. They immediately just exult. Why? Because they were prepared for it. They'd spent decades welcoming and receiving the word of God in their life. So when the word made flesh was before them, they recognized him. They were ready. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Hallelujah. Jesus said, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. How we respond to the word of God now is how we will respond then. It is foolish, brothers and sisters, to think you can live for the world and in the world and expect to be ready when he comes. This was a central aspect of Jesus' teaching. The master of the house has gone, but he's going to come back. Let the steward of the house, the servant put in charge, stay awake. Let the virgins keep their lamps lit. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's now. And this was central to the word that came to John. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, he said, because the ax is laid at the foot of the tree. Brothers and sisters, this means the moment to respond to the coming of God's word is now. Right now. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart what? Prepare him room. So let the distinction be forced now. Let revival begin now. Let hope be fostered now. Let the fire be lit in our bones now. Amen? Let me tell you how this hit me this week as I was studying it. Um, Like many of you, I imagine I was so exhausted by Thanksgiving break that I just utterly collapsed and let myself go. I normally have a pretty disciplined life but it got real bad for me over uh, Thanksgiving break. Just to give you a, a few pointers, I wore my same favorite high school sweatshirt four days in a row. <laughs> Marissa can attest, four days in a row. I loved it, I never wanted to take it off. I watched so much football, my boys who die to get the chance to watch any type of TV were asking me, Dad, can we please stop watching football? Please turn off the TV. True story, I ate five Thanksgiving dinners. Thursday night, Friday lunch, Friday dinner, Saturday lunch, Saturday dinner. I did it. 
we had that much leftovers, but I legitimately did that. And during all the eating and football and sleeping, let's just say my spiritual disciplines slid backwards a bit. And so by the time I got to Saturday night, I was absolutely regressing as a human. Um, there's only so much pie and tryptophan a guy can take. But also, I felt my spirit regressing. I could feel as my physical appetites were waxing into a full moon. <laughs> my spiritual appetites were waning. <laughs> it was getting harder for me to even uh, think about like the effort of praying or communing with God somehow. It was not pretty. And so Saturday night, I mustered up all the strength I could and I finally cracked open my Bible, sadly for the first time for most of that week because I had just been a slob. And I read this in 1 John, which was in my Bible reading for that day. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. <laughs> Sucker punch. Now hear me, Thanksgiving is not sinful. I ate it five times, okay, I believe in it. I love football, I love football. I hate when Alabama wins, for anybody who actually cares, but I do love football. Um, but I was so convicted by that first John passage, for some reason, it's exactly what God had for me, because I realized something in my spirit. It was a tug on the line for me, right? That sharpened my senses all of a sudden. I realized if it was so easy for me to grow spiritually cold and to become enmeshed in the things of the world in just a few days, Think of what could happen for a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years. It terrified me to realize how easy it would be for me to fall asleep. For me to abide in the world and to stop going out into the wilderness and stepping over that line to hear the revelation of God. And my, how the enemy would love for me to drift off in my favorite sweatshirt into oblivion. And my, how great is the enemy's arsenal for entertaining us to death. Studying how God sends his word before the word and how our response to his word matters now and is connected then was therefore exactly what I needed to hear this week. The first two Sundays of Advent have been a moment for me of cold water in the face. And that's my prayer for all of us. We certainly, listen, we want to avoid in this season the legalistic and burdensome pitfalls of New Year's resolution culture. Hear the gospel. None of us were perfect last year. Let me tell you, you're not gonna be perfect this coming year, okay? which is why all of us need Jesus to save us and we need the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. All right. Whew. I read a quote this week where somebody said, everybody talks about how the church is a crutch for weak people. And his response was, what makes you think you're not limping? Mm, so good. We're limping into 2022 
We're going to limp into 2023, and that's why we need Jesus all the time. And yet, and yet, with its insistence upon preparing the way and reminding us that the Lord is coming soon and very soon, there is a way that Advent is a water-in-your-face season. It's a new beginning every year. Every year, it's like that scene in all the cowboys, cowboy movies where the guy's drunk and they have to sober him up. So they get the barrel and they like smash his head in the barrel and give him some weird cocktail of kerosene to drink, right? Does anybody watch cowboy movies anymore? You know that scene? It's in like every one. That's what Advent is. You just get dunked all of a sudden. Now is the time for us to respond to the word of God which has come before the word and to make room for him in our life so that we may beloved to, hold, to love his appearing when he comes. Amen. So here's my question for you, and I'll, we'll finish with this. Is there an area where you have become enmeshed with the world? It's now the time that a distinction needs to be made in your life that has become fuzzy. The world is passing away. The desires of the world are passing away. Is there an area in your life where sin has become domesticated? Where your spiritual devotion has become slothful? And is now the time for revival, for a fresh fire. Has your hope grown cold? Have you given up on actually expecting God to be real and to come? Have your prayers, has church, has our liturgies of hope become routine. Now is the time for a rekindled expectation. The voice of one crying in the wilderness says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.